All right. Uh, again, before uh, Ira is introduced, just a couple notes. There are no conflicts of interest associated with his talk, and he has indicated that two of his New York Times uh, editorials are uh, printed out and available for you when you leave out on a table in the foyer. So I want you to know about those two, and you can pick those up on the way out. To introduce Ira to us today, or reintroduce him, uh, Kathy Kirkland will say a few words. She is, of course, the uh, Jack and Dorothy Byrne Distinguished Professor of Medicine, a professor of medicine, uh, director and section chief of the Palliative Medicine Program here, and uh, our wonderful colleague, Kathy. Thank you, Rich. And uh, isn't palliative care fun? I mean, when's the last time we were laughing and clapping at the beginning of a <laughs> session? <laughs> And it's great to see such a mixed, interdisciplinary community, academic, uh, Dartmouth College, Dartmouth Medical School, DHMC, Cancer Center, Aging Centers, welcome to everyone. And of course, Ira needs no introduction, but he's going to get one anyway. Um, I'm delighted to welcome Ira back to Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, where he can see the abundance of good things that have grown from the seeds he planted here during his 10 years at Dartmouth. In addition to laying a foundation on which our current interprofessional palliative care team is built, he was the real architect of the Jack Byrne Center for Palliative and Hospice Care, which will be dedicated this weekend. He took it from recognition of the critical need in our community for such a facility to a concrete vision of how we might accomplish it. And it's here. And we're so glad to have him here to see and celebrate the realization of that vision. If Dame Cicely Saunders, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and Balfour Mount were some of the founders of hospice and palliative care, Ira is one of their heirs, a true patriarch in our field. He's been a passionate advocate for whole person care, for people living with serious illness, taking as his audience not just colleagues and students, but patients, their families, and communities, and policymakers and politicians, <laughs> writing scholarly, not just scholarly papers, but op-eds and books. Some of you may have read, probably many of you have read, Dying Well, the four things that matter most, the best care possible. That one's full of stories from our own medical center. I'm sure it will surprise no one that Ira was recognized as a visionary by the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Care and given their Lifetime Achievement Award in 2014, to which it seems that he replied, not yet, I haven't. <laughs> Since leaving Dartmouth-Hitchcock to be closer to his two grandsons in Southern California and their parents, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he has founded and is the chief medical officer of the Institute for Human Caring of the Providence St. Joseph Health System. He continues to write and speak, traveling widely with his sidekick and hugest support, Yvonne Corbet, who we also uh, warmly welcome back. On a personal note, Ira was a big part of my transition from infectious disease to palliative care. 
I've learned so much from him. Um, I remember, and maybe relevant to this talk, I remember um, going into family meetings with Ira, and he would always start with the patient and the patient's story. And I can remember the looks on the faces of other people in the room from other teams when he would say, I don't even know where you were born. <laughs> and they were thinking, how long is this going to take? <laughs> But what I learned, and I think the real truth is, and I find this every day in my own work, is that finding out a person's story is not only the best, but also the fastest way to figure out what does matter most and to figure out how to get to where we need to go. So with uh, no further ado, Ira, I invite you to tell us more wisdom. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. Um, this really uh, it does feel um, amazing to me. I, I'm aware of the deep privilege of standing in front of you. Um, and you all look good since. <laughs> since. Um, this is a very soulful day, a soulful weekend for me. It's, it's incredible for Yvonne and, and I. Uh, we, we did the uh, feasibility study for the uh, Jack Byrne uh, Palliative Care and Hospice Center and to see it come to fruition. It's wonderful to see old friends and uh, to talk about things that are dear to me in, in, and what I've learned uh, for all of you. I am aware that um, since being here, there are colleagues that I, I cannot see today, um, people we've lost. I'm, I'm, as I prepared this talk, I was thinking of uh, Margot Krasnoff. Pano Rodas, Ginny uh, Hartman. I'm sure there are others, but people who um, were dear colleagues and friends. Um, and I have them in mind as I speak today. Um, I titled this What Are Doctors For? Therapeutic Relationships Through the End of Life. This actually grew from uh, one of the uh, ICE talks, the you know, uh, ICE sessions that we uh, did third year. We had the, uh, the students, uh, third, uh, third year students for uh, two days. Uh, uh, there were two weeks, it's two week uh, period, but we had them for two days in palliative care. And I would stand at a whiteboard and say, so now that you've been out in you know, clinics and the wards, what, what are we for? And what are we for really when, when, um, when we can't, you know, cure people. What are we for then? And a lot of things, you know, we'd stand on the board and, and, and I'd write things down and, and uh, we'd sort of think about uh, both what we can do and the limitations. You know, well, obviously doctors are for saving lives, right? But, you know, we've yet to make even one person immortal, right? So, you know, good news, Mrs. Bryan, I think we've got it all. It's funny, but not in, it's in that sort of <laughs> makes you uncomfortable because there's a grain of truth in this. Think, when things get to the New Yorker cartoon or the political cartoons, you know, they, they reflect something in our social psychology. Um, well, you know, what else are we for? Well, when people, we can't cure people, we're for treating pain. But let's face it, we've created a problem. I was part of creating that problem in, in evangelizing the uh, use of opioids to treat pain. We now know, if I knew then what I know now, I, the messages, the, the um, teaching would have been different. 
you know there's a problem when uh, the Surgeon General um, writes every doctor in America a note. You really know that there's a problem when uh, at the Super Bowl we're um, selling Movantic for OIC, right? This has become a major uh, scourge, a major public health problem. Uh, New Hampshire is as much affected as any place in the country. Um, so what are we for? Well, when people are seriously ill, we can guide and advise them uh, through uh, the course of an illness. <laughs> Either this is the wrong chart, the doctor says, or, well, let's just hope this is the wrong chart. And it's true, you know, medical students aren't born knowing how to talk with people about serious illness. They don't learn it in grade school or high school or college. If we don't teach it in medical school, if we don't uh, reinforce that teaching with OSCEs and, and, you know, really work on it, if we don't reinforce it again and refine that in residency uh, training and fellowship training, it's not actually the doctor's fault that they get out into practice and have trouble having these conversations. I, I feel as a medical educator, it's, it's kind of my fault. I have failed them, and now they're failing uh, their patients. It's not okay, but I, I'm, not, I'm not pointing the finger or blaming. It's just, it's a problem. In fact, uh, the, the research, such as it is, shows that doctors aren't well-trained to, to have these conversations. Um, you know, when, uh, when Tony Bach et al. Uh, did a survey of 700 and some odd physicians in practice, uh, and I asked, have you uh, had any uh, training specifically on talking with patients about and families about end-of-life care or not? Less than a third said that they had. Similar question, in your current practice or health system, is there a formal system for uh, assessing patients' end-of-life wishes or goals of care or not? Same amount. Less than 30%. That's a problem. Indeed, um, we are still living the legacy of this problem-based model of medicine. Now, medicine is built on problems that, from antiquity. The twin human health problems are illness and injury. And indeed, our goals are to cure, to you know, uh, extend life, to rehabilitate or restore function. And in palliative care, we, we, uh, within this box of medicine, we're there to alleviate symptoms and suffering. You know, this is the box within which we teach medical students and nursing students to think. It, it, in a sense, it's a, um, it's a legacy of Larry Weed, the great professor at UVM, who gave us the problem-oriented medical record, which, by the way, was a brilliant advance in, in medicine. Um, but it's become the de facto uh, framework for approaching patients. When we see a new patient, we teach medical students to, you know, create a problem list, right? Under every problem on the list, we soap our notes. Woe be it to a student or intern or resident who orders a test that doesn't relate to a problem on the list. Heaven forbid they start an intervention that isn't based on a problem. Now, it's all well and good. I think the POMR and that approach to medicine is still brilliant. But it's not the whole thing. We've kind of overlearned it. In fact, um, we teach that the nature of illness is about dealing with problems. And that itself constrains us and puts us on the wrong path. Obviously, illness contains medical problems. But as Confucius once said, <laughs> the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper name. If you think something is medical, you're going to bring medical tools to the job. 
right? You know, it's like, did you ever try to tighten the screw with a hammer? You know, you can be earnest, well-motivated. You can be smart, inventive. You can be persistent. Finally, you can get a really big hammer, and it's just not going to go well. In a sense, that's what we do in medicine. We love our patients. We get really close to many of our patients, and we don't want them to die, right? So as they get sicker, assuming that the worst thing that could happen is that our patients die, we bring intensive medical tools to the job. That's why 20% of Americans these days spend days in an ICU before they die. Right? It's not ill intention. It's trying to do the right thing, but calling it the problem the wrong thing. The fundamental nature of illness isn't medical. It's personal, intensely so. It, of course, entails the medical, but it's personal. Every time I read the memoir of a doctor writing about his or her illness or the illness of his or her spouse or loved one, think, you know, breath becomes air, uh, um, being mortal, others. At some point in the early pages, there's this recognition that, you know, I realize this is personal. It's a frame shift. And that frame shift makes all the difference. Because once you realize that things are personal, you can begin bringing the right tools to the job. Now, medicine has leapt forward, I think, in terms of what real quality is, what it means, in, in 2001 with crossing the quality chasm. As you all remember, probably, Don Berwick chaired this uh, IOM committee, and they developed this remarkable report. For the first time, we had a conceptual framework and a taxonomy for quality. Prior to that, quality was what you asserted. If you were a big enough, famous enough medical center or a big enough, famous enough, I don't know, surgeon or a specialist, you could assert that your care was the best and who really was going to challenge that. But now we have a framework. It has to be safe, effective, patient-centered, timely, efficient, and equitable. Luckily, thankfully, they uh, defined these terms. They defined patient-centeredness because had they not, where I now live in Los Angeles, you know, patient-centeredness means having valet parking as you drive up, <laughs> being able to choose your dinner off of a menu and getting nasturtiums on the plate when it comes. It's all very nice. But patient-centeredness, they said, has to do with decision-making, with decisional support. It's about healthcare that establishes a partnership among practitioners, patients, and their families when appropriate to ensure that decisions respect patients' wants, needs, and preferences, and that patients have the education and support they need to participate in their own care. This is remarkable because it gives us a taxonomy. And as all of us know, since that time, our specialties uh, our disciplines and our subspecialties have drilled down using this basic framework to, to apply that in ways that um, give us better ways to understand and measure and monitor quality. But I want to challenge us all. Because if we have a taxonomy for high quality, don't we, by contrast, also have a taxonomy for low quality? Or, as I'd like to put it in plain speak, bad care? It's care that is unsafe or ineffective or non-patient-centered or untimely or inefficient 
or inequitable. And it's common in every health system. I still travel a lot. I consult a lot. I now work for Providence St. Joseph Health, 50 hospitals over seven states, umpteen clinics, 824 clinics, nursing homes, hospice programs, home health programs, PACE programs. We're a good health system, but we're an American health system that looks more like the rest of American health systems than others. And I know we have bad care. Um, look at any large health um, system or hospitals, uh, ICUs, and you're likely to find one or more patients who have been in the ICU for three weeks or more, uh, on event, multi-system organ failure, um, CVVH from time to time, um, on two antibiotics and an antifungal, pressors occasionally when blood pressure gets soft, vac dressing, you know, whisking away infected fluid. If that patient's family has not had a formal meeting to discuss achievable physiological and functional outcomes and whether they are still consistent with the patient's values, preferences, and priorities, that's bad care. It's common, but it's bad care. And it's not my allegation or judgment. The, the, the critical care societies themselves say that, that that's bad care, that these uh, conversations about goal alignment aren't ancillary. They're not uh, a nicety. They are critical, uh, intrinsic to providing good care. We have now Choosing Wisely, a brilliant uh, project of uh, the American Board of Internal Medicine, now um, co-sponsored by 50 or more medical societies that, uh, that have uh, listed uh, procedures or treatments that the societies themselves suggest are unduly burdensome or, or ineffective and, and uh, non-beneficial. And yet many of these things are common. One of my um, favorites, that's not the right word, but one that I like to point out is the use of um, multifraction uh, XRT for um, radiation treatments for solitary bone mets uh, of cancer, people who are frail. Uh, and we know that uh, 800 rads once or 8 gray once works as well as, you know, uh, treatments over three weeks. Now, recent data from UCLA where they, they, didn't, they weren't satisfied with the ASTRO guidelines or the Choosing Wisely guidelines, which has three different specialties weighing in on this, they created their own RAND UCLA evidence-based guidelines because they're UCLA. So... They looked at this. They then looked at a retrospective study of 81 patients with uh, uh, painful bone mets, and they applied their own criteria. Um, after um, taking out those, after re removing those who had stereotactic and had uh, other potential complications, they got down to those who clearly qualified for evidence-based uh, guidelines and formal recommendations. And what they found was that a single patient received their own recommended guidelines. I could go further. Another one that uh, really um, affects me is the use of peg tubes for feeding tubes for people with advanced dementia. It's been shown to be non-beneficial and overly burdensome. Again, three specialties in choosing wisely discourage it. It doesn't prevent decubiti. It doesn't uh, hasten the uh, curing or the, the healing of decubiti. It doesn't pro prolong life. 
And yet, where I currently live and practice in, in L.A., uh, there are 12% of people who get peg tubes for advanced dementia. That's 12 times the amount that get them in Portland or Salt Lake City or elsewhere. It happens, and we pay for it. What I learned a long time ago is to start a new relationship with a patient, a therapeutic relationship with a patient, by asking who they are, starting with the social history. I'm going to chart it down under the allergies or the med list, but I start the interview with it because it frames it, our relationship, within the context of the person's life, not just the complication that brought them to the hospital about their illness. I learned long ago to just start by saying, I want to make sure that you receive the best care possible. In addition to all the treatments for this disease, that includes attending to your symptoms and your sense of well-being. In focusing on your physical health, I don't want to ignore how this illness affects your personal life, your feelings, your hopes, your fears, as well as those of your family. That phrase, the best care possible, is, is, not, um, is not a trick. You know, it's in the vernacular. I wrote a book by that title, but I didn't copyright. I mean, I, you know, it's there. It's the one thing I know that every person in our diverse society wants. When you or someone you love is seriously ill, you want the best care possible. But it's not a one-size-fits-all model. Because we're diverse and have uh, cultural differences, uh, very personal differences, idiosyncrasies, uh, we have different values. We have different priorities. And what's right for one person might be entirely wrong for the other, even though they have the same constellation of primary diagnoses and comorbidities. The best care always starts with a conversation. But in America, we don't want to have these conversations. You know, it's always too soon until it's too late. Right? I love, anybody know Roz Chast's book, that cartoon book? Wonderful. She's a New Yorker cartoonist, and she titled, trying to talk to her parents about these issues. The, book, the title of the book is, Could We Please Talk About Something More Pleasant? Right? But it's always too soon until it's too late. That's why those of us who've practiced uh, hospital-based medicine, either you know, uh, emergency department medicine, critical care, hospital medicine, inpatient palliative care, sometimes meet people in the ICU, intubated, who've never had these conversations, even though they've had COPD with multiple exacerbations or heart failure with multiple exacerbations or even lung cancer, and nobody wanted to bring it up. We didn't want to destroy their hope, right? We didn't want to make them cry. And so we kicked the can down the road. It's always too soon until it's... There's a superstition. People don't want to talk about this. Sometimes when you try to bring this up or the patient tries to bring it up, Doc, I don't know how this long I can keep going. I, I don't know. This doesn't seem to be going well. Surely his wife says, uh, Harry, I thought we were going to stay positive. Right? It, it, it's as if, um, you know, that commitment becomes, it becomes disloyal to bring this stuff up. It's always too soon until it's too late. The coin of the realm in quality these days is something called shared decision-making. Here I am at the temple of shared decision-making saying this. But this has changed a lot over the years. When I was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, shared decision-making happened when the doctor shared the decision he had made with you. Right? Nowadays, we know it's a partnership, just like the IOM said it is. Right? It's a partnership between 
doctors, providers, and patients. We, we in healthcare hopefully come to the clinical encounter expert in the diagnosis and the treatment of the patient's condition, their primary diagnosis, their comorbidities. But patients and families are already expert in their personhood. They know about what matters most to them. They know about their ethnicity, their uh, religion, the extent to which their religion impacts their, you know, their preferences. They know about their idiosyncrasies. Together, in partnership, we can determine what the best treatment options are and apply them in ways that are consistent with the values, preferences, and priorities of the people we serve. Shared decision-making is a collaborative process that allows patients or their surrogates and clinicians to make healthcare decisions together, taking into account the best scientific evidence available as well as the patient's values, goals, and preferences. Notice this didn't come from some you know, woo-woo palliative care journal. <laughs> this came from the College of Critical Care and ATS. Now, usually we talk about, you know, in making decisions, we're going to balance the benefits versus the burdens. But since this is an academic uh, presentation, let's be honest, it's actually the potential benefits, because they're never assured, versus the known burdens, think surgery or chemotherapy or something like that, and the risks. And when I'm working with people to make decisions, I often find myself doing this, right? And it also happens on a current quality of life. So, you know, if suffering is high and quality of life is low, people might tilt away from uh, burdensome treatments but toward uh, treatments that might alleviate their suffering. Other way, I mean, you have to sort of balance this, right? If the, if the proposed treatment might alleviate their suffering, even if it has high risk, they might go for it because current quality of life is not worth living. Current quality of life is good, and the potential benefits are modest, and the burdens are, you know, quite substantive, they might lean away from decisions. So that helps me kind of help people work through things. But in fact, most people who are seriously ill will say something like this. I want all the medical treatments uh, possible as long as my quality of life is worth living and the potential benefits outweigh the burdens and risks, right? Conversations really matter. They are their own very powerful interventions. Uh, this is one piece of data I, I like to share. This is a uh, now, from my perspective, a famous study uh, that was conducted at MGH by our colleagues at, at Dana-Farber at MGH. And they um, did a prospective study. There were 332 diets, patients with advanced cancer and their uh, significant others or uh, proxies. And they followed them through the course of their illness until death. They analyzed this. This study was published after analyzing around this one item. Have you and your doctor ever discussed particular wishes you have about care you would want to receive if you were dying? When they looked at patients after they died and looked at the last seven days of their life, they found that even with one conversation, what happened was pretty dramatic. If you hadn't had that conversation, there was a 12% chance of the patient being in the ICU. That dropped to one-third of that with even a single conversation. 11% ended up on a ventilator. The association was less than 2% if they'd had a conversation. 
6.7% had CPR performed. Let me just pause and say this is not full CPR status. This is actually having CPR performed with advanced cancer, which, as we know, often does not work. It was never invented for this purpose. Right? That dropped to less than 1% if you'd had a conversation. And being at home with hospice rose by 1.5 times if you'd had a conversation. This really matters. I wish I could show you data from our own system. It's on a whole other presentation. But let me show you this one. We recently started being able to create analyses of what happens when we look at goals of care conversations. So we've taken the serious illness conversation guide that comes out of Atul Gawande's Ariadne Labs, and we put it into EPIC, and we are teaching it extensively. Now, this is at Little Company Mary Torrance. We're very close to this is the hospital I have privileges at. And although this is a 50-hospital health system, we've really used this as a proving ground to put in multiple interventions and create new um, um, systems of uh, care. Um, so we looked at uh, first quarter, this is very new data, first quarter of uh, this year, discharges from Little Company Mary. Uh, we used the Dartmouth Atlas nine categories of serious illness. And when we look at those who did not have a conversation, and we look at did their code status change during that hospitalization, 5.7% had uh, code status change. If they'd had one goals of care note in EPIC, that rose by over four times. That's a leading indicator showing that we're beginning to align what people actually want with what we're doing for them. Conversations really matter. In fact, I won't go through this, but when you look at the array of evidence, and it's not that strong, but it's pretty persuasive when you look at the, the body of evidence, these conversations have multiple uh, positive outcomes. But there are limitations to what we can do or what we should do. Now, I talk about professional boundaries because I think, in general, we medical educator, educators teach them poorly. We teach them as constraints only. And we, we often leave our medical students somewhat confused and worried that they shouldn't be, shouldn't be showing emotion, that they confuse professional boundaries with emotional detachment and sort of standing back. You know, we're not sure we should touch patients. We're not sure we should do. I teach professional boundaries in a simplified way, which I think is quite powerful, because if you know what you can't do, if you're not supposed to do, you can actually bring your whole self to the clinical encounter. If you think that you have to be, you know, emotionally detached, practice becomes parched. It becomes kind of starchy. And the days become long. So I teach medical students these days, and I'll share this with you, that there are basically only three professional boundaries. And I challenge students to, I'll give you my email, my cell phone number. If you forget the three, call me anytime. Right? First, no personal gain. This is a service profession. Everything we do is supposed to be of service to the patient. We are well compensated, thankfully, in, in the profession of medicine. And that has to be enough. The patient who is seriously ill may want to give you that red Tesla <laughs> that he's not going to drive anymore, and you may want it, but that's not okay, right? 
You get to situations like this with doctors without boundaries. So could we have all of your stuff after you die? It's ridiculous. We would never do that. We have development officers to do that. <laughs> and that's why, that's part of why we do. Because people will, you know, there are grateful patients. We can identify them, but we ought to pass them off. Because it's never a level relationship. A treating physician making a request crosses a ethical boundary. Right? Not, that's number one. Number two, no sex. <laughs> People in a, in a clinical relationship, there will be times when patients are the ones that initiate intimacy. Oh, Dr. Bach, you're the only one who understands me. I know, you, you know you're the only one who's listened to my whole story, and I know you feel the attraction too. Right? It's okay to feel it. That's kind of diagnostic in a sense that something's going on in this room, right? It's like this uh, psychiatrist who say, if you walk into a room and you weren't depressed walking in the room and within 10 minutes you're feeling depressed, that's kind of diagnostic because we're emotional tuning forks. So something's going on there, but it's not okay. Uh, the great Gabriel Byrne playing a therapist, Paul Weston, in uh, the HBO series On Treatment. Uh, was approached by his 9 a.m. patient, uh, recurring patient, uh, Laura, who felt it, and he would love this man, and he crossed the line. It's okay to feel it, but not okay to act on it, right? Now, having said this and given this type of uh, discussion to medical students, I've had a a medical student come up and say, well, doctor, afterward, and say, Dr. Black, so I grew up next to a family uh, that I were married 25 years, now 30 years, and I was best friends with their son, but I happen to know that that relationship started as a therapeutic relationship. Were they wrong? I mean, I, so first, who am I to judge, right? But secondly, the, the, the exception does not disprove or invalidate the principle. It's never a level relationship. And so intimacy is something we gave up in antiquity uh, and need to preserve. We, we, we have a privilege and, and special authority to see people in intimate ways, uh, probe their bodies uh, in, in very intimate ways. We gave up the uh, right to have uh, sexual relations. And third, no killing. <laughs> Now, I know this is an, a touchy subject these days. I practice for a, with a Catholic health system that, that has hospitals in uh, five states that have uh, legalized physician hasten death. A sixth of the American population lives in jurisdictions where physician-assisted suicide or hasten death is legal. But while they have made it legal, ethically, they have not made it medical. And that's an important distinction. The College of Physicians just three weeks ago came out with a statement reaffirming that while it may be legal, it's not within the bounds of ethical practice. Corollaries to this are physicians are not to participate in capital punishment, even when it's legal. We are not to participate in torture or enhanced interrogation, even when ordered to do so by you know, a general or a police officer. 
What we can do is bring all of our tools to lessen people's suffering. We must do whatever we can so that they do not die in physical agony. As often as I've debated Tim Quill, a wonderful doc from Rochester, New York, who's been the plaintiff in Vaco v. Quill and a leading proponent for physician-assisted suicide, is right about so many things, just wrong about this. Um, we came together years ago under the auspices of the College of Physicians to write about uh, palliative sedation, proportionate palliative sedation, which is not only ethically acceptable, but in some uh, situations, I would say, is requisite unless the patient himself or herself is refusing it. When it's needed, it's there. But there's a difference between alleviating suffering and eliminating the sufferer. And that's the, if it seems like a fine line, that's the very bright line that we need to tread. In Throughout the Providence St. Joseph Health System, uh, I've been part of establishing and, and promulgating the policies and now teaching into this, particularly in California, where the End of Life Options Act has just gone into force. And what we're teaching is this. First, there are two moral agents in every clinical encounter, uh, irreducibly the patient and the provider. There's a distinction between suicide, which in some circumstances may be a personal, purely personal and private act, and assisted suicide, which obviously entails another person. And in physician-assisted suicide, that person is someone who is trained, licensed, certified, and compensated by society. Rational suicide exists. And even with perfect care, with perfect palliative care and hospice care, some people will still desire to end their own lives. I get that. As clinicians and as health system leaders, our responsibility is to do everything we can to make the very best of the patient's condition and quality of life. The patient, as a moral agent, will need to decide whether uh, and to what extent what we can offer meets his or her goals. It's not a requirement that they get care from us. That's their choice. So programmatically, and I'm pushing hard within our health system because we have lots of quality improvement to do, to deliver, our responsibilities are to deliver in a reliable and timely fashion, progressive and when necessary, intensive symptom management, extending to palliative sedation when necessary. We need to reliably manage urgent symptoms in hospice uh, patients' residences, including policies and procedures, staffing, pharmaceutical resources, uh, staff training, and patient and family education. There needs to be medications available in the home so that they don't suffer or that the nurse doesn't have to begin calling a doctor to write a prescription, finding someone to run to a pharmacy if they can find one open and get the prescription. That's irresponsible. Now, before I leave this sobering topic, let me say that as Robert Twycross, one of the true founders of palliative medicine, once observed, a doctor, who has never, a doctor who has never been tempted to kill a patient probably has had limited clinical experience or is unable to empathize with those who suffer. It's true. In a busy clinical practice in the ICU or in palliative medicine, hospital medicine, we'll meet patients who in our heart of hearts we think would be better off if they died later today. We'll meet patients who we think would be better off if they died last week. It's not our job to hasten their death, but in acknowledging this, that's important. 
There are times when, as physicians, we may feel like we cannot imagine what else we can do to lessen this person's discomfort. That's why we have principles to remind us what we must not do. And that's why we work in teams. There are times when we're stuck and cannot imagine what else we can do. We need to have colleagues to call and say, hey, I'm stuck. I don't, I've never seen this syndrome before. I don't know. I've tried this, this, and this. and I don't know where to go next. Can you come down and help me? Or can we do a quick conference on this? That's why we have colleagues around the country we can call to say, I've never seen this, but I, have you? Right? We've gotten to this point in, the, in a protocols, and we're stuck. When we cannot imagine what else we can do, maybe the limitation is in our imagination rather than in the clinical um, protocols or in our clinical capacities. So maybe we're just tired. Maybe we are emotionally too close or overwhelmed. Our things may be happening in our personal life that's leaving us feeling a bit empty. Maybe we've lost a patient we love dearly recently and we're just feeling a little bit frazzled. Maybe we need to expand our imagination. So let me change topics for a moment. I'll come back to imagination. How can we serve people we cannot cure? Well, there's some actually empiric data on this. Karen Steinhauser, James Tulsky et al. Uh, did focus groups with people who were seriously ill and families of, of people who lost uh, loved ones who were seriously ill recently. And they had like 25 different things that might be important to them. And they went through these lists and, and did formal qualitative analysis of, of the focus groups. And what they came down with was people value pain and symptom management. They value clear decision-making. They value being prepared for death. That came from family members who said, when Joe died, we were shocked. Even though when we looked at Joe's chart, it was a stair-stepping of progressive illness over time. We weren't shocked, right? But for each time they stair-stepped, it was a new normal for the family. And they weren't prepared for what was coming. People value a sense of completion. That's something I've been asserting uh, through illness narratives for years, that there's a sense that the value of, of uh, completing one's life, life, not just leaving one's life. A sense of contributing to others, not simply being the object of, of care or a burden to others, and being affirmed as a whole person. Here's the quick summary of, of things that w I wrote down from working with medical students in those ICE courses. It's a pretty uh, comprehensive list. In palliative care, when people are seriously ill in any discipline, alleviation of symptoms and suffering are our first priorities. But they're not our ultimate goals. And I, I just come back to, if the nature of illness isn't medical but personal, while we have the capacity for suffering, there must be some other capacity on the other pole of personal experience. I was taught this years ago by Mrs. Holine, her real name, this was way before HIPAA. I was a young hospice doctor in Missoula, Montana. Mrs. Holine had moved to the Missoula from the Dakotas because she was living with and dying of cancer and being cared for by a sister who lived in Missoula. She reminds me of this quote from Myrna Lewis and Robert Butler, two of the founders of geriatrics in the United States. All the significant, truly significant emotional options remain available until the moment of death. 
love, hate, reconciliation, self-assertion, self-esteem. <laughs> Mrs. Olean insisted that this second picture be taken. She said, if you're going to show them my picture, show them this one. <laughs> she reminds us, yes, her self-esteem was intact. Her sense of humor was intact. But what I want to emphasize here, the macro point here, is that Mrs. Holine was living during the period of time that we would consider her to be dying. Right? I had just signed her up for the hospice Medicare benefit. She was certifiably dying, but very much alive. And that's an important. We, we sometimes use the word death when the word dying would, would fit much better. Death is beyond life, a lifeless state. I don't know what a good death is. Don't know if a rock is having a good day or a bad day. Dying is a part of living. I, don't, I know about that only because, like so many of you, I hang out with people who are dying. Uh, and for years have asked them to tell me their stories, help me understand their experience so I can begin to see the world through their eyes a bit so that I can be a better doctor and, frankly, a, a better teacher. I've learned that there are opportunities that exist within this difficult time of life we call dying. Opportunities to complete one's life, to communicate bad news and sad feelings, to resolve previously strained relationships, to grieve together the impending loss of life and relationships, to renew one's life, review one's life, to tell one's stories, to achieve a sense or in, strengthen a sense of connection to something larger than oneself that will endure in some other fashion. This is, when you look at illness through the lens of the personal, things look different. Here's a case. If I was to present this case at tumor board or, or an M&M, I would present it like this. This is a case of 70-year-old man, HM, diagnosed with uh, cholangiocarcinoma. He had surgery within five days of uh, diagnosis of pancreatoduodenectomy and, and uh, jejunostomy. The pathology, unfortunately, showed local extension to the liver, perineural involvement, and positive regional nodes. He underwent adjuvant uh, 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 agent chemotherapy and external beam radiation. He had multiple IR, interventional radiology procedures, to unblock a biliary tract, um, and complications often during those, after those procedures of bacteremia or bleeding. Interestingly, for many months, he had only mild pain, fair to good function, and excellent appetite. That's the medical. But many of you know I'm talking about Herb. That was Herb Maurer, an unremarkable human being, somebody I deeply respected. Some, he had an uncanny ability to think like tumors, know where they were going. I, I was in awe of Herb as a clinician. He was an academician, a colleague, and a good friend. He was married for 25 years to dear Letha, who honors me with being here today. He had four sons and a daughter. He was an accomplished furniture maker and painter. Those are, that's a pen and ink of, he did it for his self-portrait. Um, his goals of care, very pertinent to this talk, were to, same thing, use medical treatments as long as they had, his quality of life was worth sustaining and the benefits outweighed the treatments. He had a lot of treatments. He went through a lot. Uh, but he had an advanced directive on the chart, and he made sure every time he was in the hospital, Greg Ripple was his doctor, made sure every time he was in the hospital that every member of the team knew where to find it. We had just moved to Epic. Oi. <laughs> <laughs> he made sure they read it, made sure they knew that she was the whole vote if he couldn't speak for himself. And he insisted on being DNR every time he was in the hospital. Now, he was getting aggressive treatments. He wanted to stay alive. Life was precious. But he knew that if he coded, 
his quality of life was going to stair step, and he wanted that to be his natural death. He was really strict about that. But Herb also realized that this was personal. So he used the time well. He renewed marriage vows with Letha on their farm, attended a son's graduation, reached out to children, his older children, from whom he, you know, just distance in their age uh, had created some distance. There wasn't tensions exactly, but just distance. Wrote letters, calls, visits. Family dinners became uh, really important. He relished <laughs> uh, weekly oysters on Sunday afternoons, gin and oysters with family and friends. You had to be lucky to get invited. <laughs> Actively completed relationships with people who had meant, been important to him over the years. Um, here, Letha and Herb on their farm. <clears throat> I'm going to get choked up. With grandchildren. And yes, there were oysters and gin. <laughs> this was taken about just 10 days before Herb died. Um, so let me say, uh, and I'm close to closing, um, but not there yet, um, that we have to stretch the box of the, of the um, medical model. That, yes, it entails all of those physiologic and functional goals and alleviation of symptoms and suffering, but it's also about the personal. It's about you know, family well-being, personal and family well-being and the life cycle, experiencing all of this stuff within the context of a full and healthy life. I teach pro professional boundaries because if you've got those three down, you'll be tested later. <laughs> then you can bring your whole self to the clinical encounter. You know, you can, you can enjoy your relations with patients. You can establish real friendships with patients. You can kibitz with patients, right? And that's okay. There's no boundary being crossed. I love this metaphor of accompanying people on a journey that they would not have chosen, that you would not have chosen for them. Now, uh, Yvonne and I, some of you know, are fly fishermen. We love to run rivers with, and, and fish. We're dry fly fishermen. It's a, it's a very esoteric sport. <laughs> we fish in Montana pretty commonly. It's joyous. It's fabulous. But we're not boat people. We're, we're not, you know, we're not skilled. So when we go fly fishing down a river in, in Montana, understanding that rivers change from season to season, sometimes week to week, and things, it can be dangerous out there. When we go fly fishing, we bring somebody who looks like this. <laughs> somebody who in his muscle memory knows how to get you out of tough places, who knows where the snags tend to be, who know, can read rivers and see where a, a different channel has just opened that you may or may not want to go down. Now, I am not that guy, <laughs> right, in a river. But when somebody is on a journey of serious incurable illness, I kind of am that guy. I have been down this road with many people before, and I kind of know where the snags are. Some of you may recognize this patient. I've written about her in The Best Care Possible as Sharon, but her real name is Karen. This is Karen Vago. I use her real name because her mom has asked me to start using her real name. Karen was the prince of darkness, princess of darkness up in the Chad. She had terrible cystic fibrosis, lung disease, gut disease, cirrhosis, um, malabsorption, diabetes, um, and and I'll come back to her story in a bit. 
But that therapeutic stance of just accompanying her through this uh, was, was helpful for both of us. I was able to establish a real clinical therapeutic relationship. We can accompany people. Even though we are unable to realistically hope for a cure, there will always be things that we can do to improve your comfort and quality of life, and we'll walk those difficult steps with you, too. I mean this as a team. It's not just me. or It's a, it's a team, and it's a team that is able to hand off to other teams. It involves these qualities of this therapeutic stance, competence in all aspects, within that team, reliability, you ought to be able to get to somebody who knows you or can get to your chart quickly. Um, it, it means really doing the work uh, for palliative care, not just within our hospital, but even with EMS, the emergency department EMS, because think of it, the emergency medical services, we're now sharing catchment with people. We're putting the sickest patients in our healthcare system back into the community. We need to coordinate things so that they're getting the best care possible. Honesty, being able to say hard things to people in ways that they can understand. Sometimes not only sharing news about their diagnosis, but sometimes um, talking about their behaviors, which at, even though they're dying, may need to be adjusted so that they're not making nurses cry, for instance. I have a patient in mind as I say this. Um, authenticity. The vernacular is being real. That's where the joy of practice comes from. That's, that's, the, that's the fullness of practice. When you can be in an authentic relationship with patients, the days aren't long and parched. They're rich, full. You know, we talk about burnout as people th say, well, how do you do this? Don't, aren't you just drained? Well, yeah, there are days. But we're also filled up by the privilege and the, and the incredible joy of practice. And then imagination. Imagination isn't also woo-woo. It is important to therapeutics. We have to be able to imagine what we can do for a patient, what a better outcome would look like, before we can creatively think about how we might achieve that. In imagining people well, we can sometimes remarkably have therapeutic outcomes that we might not have thought. When I was sitting with Karen Vago for many hours and Chad over many months, she wouldn't talk to you if you walked in the room and she didn't want to talk. That was her thing. She could cocoon in the room and then she just wouldn't talk. But she knew she wasn't going to grow up to be an adult, but she had this wish of, uh, you know, this cognitive dissonance. I'm going to grow up and work with animals. I'm going to be a groomer or a veterinary assistant. And she loved Jeff Corwin on the Discovery Channel. If his show was on when you walked in the room, you sat down and watched it with her, or you left and came back when it was over. So I watched a lot of Jeff Corwin with <laughs> trying to bank relationship. One day I said to her, Karen, you love this guy. Why don't you write him a letter? You know all his animals. And she said, oh, I, he'd never get it. I, I said, look, you write him a letter. I'll get it into his hands. I had no idea how I would do that, by the way, when I said that. But I've done harder things than that. It took three weeks. She worked with her mom. She worked with Child Life at our remarkable hospital. And she finally wrote that letter. Within 48 hours, he answered and invited her to spend a day with him on his farm in western Massachusetts. When she came back to the hospital, when she was next in Chad and I saw her, she hugged me for the first time. I'd known her for over 18 months. 
And she said, this was the best day of my life. Her mom confirmed that. She had had a hard life. Born in Alaska, lots of socioeconomic stuff, family, broken family, lots of stuff. She had this day. That wasn't in any disease treatment algorithm for cystic fibrosis, no palliative care algorithm. It was there because I could put myself into her young perspective, seeing the world as she might see the world, and then recruit my creative imagination to see what could we achieve that might be of value for her. This is Karen a number of weeks, months later, when she was actively, uh, more actively dying. This is not her mom, but the uh, uh, artist who created Karen's Alaska that I hope still hangs in Chad. Imagination. Here's Harry and Diane. Harry was up on surgery, had terrible transitional cell carcinoma, pelvic exenteration. I said, we knew we weren't going to get him home. I said, Harry, is there anything left undone? He said, I got to marry Diane. <laughs> Who knew? They'd been sweethearts for 14 years, but because of finances had never combined their relationship, their uh, households, she came up only uh, occasionally at night and on weekends, and I had never met her. So we got him a bouquet to give her. We got the chaplains to uh, marry, marry them, and then we had witnesses. Now, what's cool about this is that these medical students witnessing Harry and Diane's wedding were not on a hospice or palliative care rotation. They were on their surgery rotation, learning that sometimes the best surgical care possible includes witnessing a patient's wedding, because this is personal, not medical. So I'll end there and say the next big thing in healthcare is seeing well-being as possible during the course of even terminal illness. Not just alleviating suffering, but allowing people to have a sense of life completion, to die with a sense of well-being, to have their inherent dignity affirmed, and to honor and celebrate the people we know and love and have the privilege of serving in their passing. Thank you very much for the work you do day in and day out. Thank you for the deep privilege of being among you. This is something to take back to the West Coast that comes from the field that was cleared for the hospice wow. center. When it was cleared, there was one wonderful, tall, red oak tree. And I got a piece of it and dried it thank you. and turned it. Oh, and that's you. for you. You saw at the first, my first slide that my affiliation with Dartmouth, this remarkable medical system, continues. I am so proud of that affiliation. So thank you very much for this. Uh, you are in my hearts, my heart. Thank you very much. Thank you.